All right. Um, Daniel chapter 2. Let's turn there. Daniel chapter 2. And we began about three weeks ago. Actually, we've had three studies already in chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to begin a series of studies in chapter 2. But we're going to we're going to cover a considerable amount of, of ground because um, we're, we're going to need to take time to get through the, uh, the, the prophecy that is, is uh, essentially important for the church to understand in the days and times in which we live. I'm just waiting for the screen to go up so we can get started here. I know that we have it up there. I, I uh, always make sure it's there. There it is. All right. Daniel chapter 2. And I'll talk a little bit about chapter 1 and in just a moment so we can get some of you caught up where we've been. It says in verse 1, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep break from him. Simply, that just means he didn't get very much sleep. And then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now, the, the, the understanding that they come before the king is because usually with every king... They had this same job. You know, the, the king would say, listen, I just had a dream. Well, tell us what the dream is and we'll tell you what it means. So it was, uh, it was not uncommon for them to have this kind of a calling from the king to come. But it changes after this. Because in verse 3 it says, The king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. And then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, which is Aramean, And this is where it begins the section from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7 that is written here in Aramaic in the Scriptures. So then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, or Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So that was kind of the common thing that they said. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. Literally what he says is, I don't know what the dream is. Whether that's true or not, I think we're going to discover that this is all a part of a test. The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, in other words, you better tell me what the dream was. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. I think he got their attention. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive from me or of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. So, begins... Chapter 2. In 605 B.C., the end had come for the mighty Assyrian Empire. This is kind of review. But in 605 B.C., the end had come for the mighty Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonians had 
conquered Nineveh, which was pretty much the center of, of the Assyrian Empire. And then they finally broke the Assyrians at the famous battle of Karshemish. Now, Karshemish was located where the mighty Euphrates River intersects the modern border between Syria and Turkey. The Assyrians had been allied with Egypt. And so after the battle, Nebuchadnezzar began his march to Egypt, stopping to take control of Jerusalem along the way. As we've learned before, Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest young men from Jerusalem back to Babylon to be trained and serve in his government. Now here's the training. We talked about this last time. The training was they were going to be completely immersed in Babylonian culture, in Babylonian uh, customs, in Babylonian language, which is Aramaic, uh, in the Babylonian foods, which for the most part were, were all uh, uh, non-kosher foods and non-kosher items. And much of them, if they weren't non-kosher, then they were items that were uh, actually offered unto their gods. And then, of course, we know what Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what they did in taking a stand against those things. Even though they did learn the customs, they did learn the language, they did learn the wisdom and the, uh, the understanding of, of, the, of the Babylonian culture. But as I said, these young Jewish men had already faced their first great spiritual challenge in proving their God. They were proving their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to be greater and more powerful than any God Babylon, uh, the Babylonians could ever hold over them. They, could, they couldn't get to... They, they could change their names, which they did. They changed their names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They changed their names, but they couldn't change their hearts. That's the wonderful thing about those who take a stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Just as Daniel and his friends dared to take that stand. But now, more than likely, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, as it tells us, and after the three years of training, the Hebrew men had been taken through, uh, you know, the, the training that the Hebrew men had been taken through in Babylon. The Babylonian ruler had this recurring dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, there, there's not going to be any need for us to approach this dream uh, with psychology or with psychiatry to interpret it. A lot of people try to do that kind of stuff today. I mean, let's face it, man hasn't advanced in this area of dream interpretation since the time of the Babylonians, as we shall see, and they weren't very good at it then either. <laughs> I don't know why we keep trying to think we're good at it now. One question we do have to ask is, was this series of dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, was it based on inspiration or, indi or indigestion? Because sometimes, I mean, we, we attribute bad dreams, confusing dreams, even weird dreams, to very spicy pizza or very spicy foods. But one thing we do know is that these recurring dreams were troubling to the king to the point of rendering him sleepless. 
And so the king summoned the wise men of his realm and men who professed to be able to foretell the future by one means or another. Well, there were obviously a number of methods used for this. Magic, as we saw, they summoned magicians. They summoned astrologers, and so they tried it with astrology. And if you remember well, Babel, back in the book of Genesis, you know, we, we talked a long time ago about the, the building of that tower, and, and many people believe that that tower was, in fact, the, uh, uh, had in it the, the, uh, all of the constellations that uh, they would point to uh, from which the uh, horoscope came and, and, and astrology became actually very popular that way. So magic, astrology, sorcery, we could call that black magic if you'd like, and other things. But the, ma- the magicians were actually just fortune tellers. What's interesting, the magicians were fortune tellers and scholars. <laughs> Often in the ancient world, those roles were combined. The astrologers were men who charted the position of the stars to determine people's destinies, much like, as I said, the horos- horoscopes of today. The sorcerers were spiritualists and enchanters who were nothing more than mediums who attempted to talk with the dead and to cast spells. These old lies continue under the guise of the new age today. So as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. But along with the spiritualists, the Chaldeans were mentioned as well. These were the wisest and the most knowledgeable men in the arts and the sciences in Babylon. And so this was the complete package, so to speak. They had everything. They tried everything. They did everything to please the king. And as I said before, it was pretty easy when the king would say, well, listen, this is what I dreamed. Do you all remember the dreams that Joseph had? God gave him the dreams. What we're going to discover is that God is giving the dreams here to Nebuchadnezzar for Daniel to be the one to interpret. But go even a step further. He not only interprets the dreams, he actually tells them what the dream was. And again, we see the hand of God in this. We, we see how the God who is the God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, how he deals with Mankind. In this case, it isn't just about Babylon. As we shall see when we read the dream and hear the dream next, next time. It isn't just about Babylon, but it is about the Gentiles. And it isn't just about a certain period of time. It is about that time plus the time that is to come. And what is taking place in the world today. There is that effect from this particular dream and interpretation. But the Babylonians had all this complete package. Art, sciences, black magic, astrology, spiritism. You see, looking to the world for answers is what man continues to do today. Man continually looks to the world for answers. 
But the Apostle Paul says differently. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says in verses 8 through 10, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. The philosophies of the world, the thinkings of the world, and vain deceit. Just downright deception. Worthless deception, which is what we see a little bit of in, in our story today, in our, in our study today, I should say. After the tradition of men, notice, after the rudiments of the world, the fundamentals of the world, and not after Christ. This is where two worldviews collide. In effect, there really only is two worldviews. There's the worldview that we have from the Scriptures and everything else. Now, you can break everything else down into many other different worldviews based upon uh, culture, society, religion, so on and so forth. But when it has no mention or, or uh, uh, solution through Christ, then it is all lumped together as being the rudiments of the world, tradition of men, vain deceit, and the world's philosophies. He says, beware, lest anyone spoil you. For in Him, in Jesus Christ, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, you not only get Jesus, you get the fullness of the whole Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit along with the Son. And you are complete in Him. So every believer in Jesus Christ needs to realize that we are complete in Christ. We're not complete in the things of the world. We've been there already. And we realize how empty the world is and we realize how empty some of the things are that the world tries to get us to do to understand how things work in the world, but we already know. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man sinned in the garden. And is in desperate need of a redeemer. And God made the provision for that, didn't he? God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed singular. The singular seed of, of Jesus Christ. The seed that would become Jesus Christ. So all these wise men in Babylon... Together, they were challenged by the king who said to them, I'm troubled to know the dream. I want to know what it means. And as I said from the next verse, verse 4 to the end of the chapter, chapter 7, I should say the dialogue will be in Aramaic. And let's look at it, this part again. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac or in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream and we will show the interpretation the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Uh, let me explain a little bit here. A couple, well, a couple of things are, are, are very important. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar at this time 
has been in, in, in power now for about two years. His father died when he was out in battles and all. And then when he hears about his father's death, he goes back to Babylon. So, he, you know, he's having to kind of deal with the people that were left in his father's uh, court, you know, in his, fa- in his father's government. And to some extent, what we can read within the, uh, within the, the lines here is that he doesn't trust these guys. He doesn't trust these men. So there is that thought that, you know, here's the test for them. He says, you guys get away easy by just saying, look, just tell us a dream and we'll tell you something and we'll satisfy you. Then we'll keep our heads and you, you know, you can get uh, some interpretation, whether it's the right one or not. He's testing that. Secondly, it says that, uh, you know, if you don't do this by giving me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to cut you in pieces. Now, the word cut there is not in the Hebrew. It's not Hebrew. It's more like I'm going to pull your arms and legs off. That's pretty much what he says. And they used to have this, this kind of uh, torture thing where they, you know, they tie your hands and, and, and put you in a, you know, they'd have two, four horses going in different directions, your hands and your, and your legs, and, and they just rip them right off of you. That, that, was, that was the whole idea. I'm trying not to be so gruesome to you all. Is that all right? Not too bad? Okay. But that's what it meant. And he says, And your houses shall be made a dunghill. I'm going to turn your beautiful houses into outhouses, is what he was saying. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, hey, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. So, they've said to him, O king, live forever. That was a typical Oriental or Eastern courtesy. And when you're speaking to a tyrannical dictator such as Nebuchadnezzar, it would be wise to use all the flattery that you can. So that's why they said, Oh, king, live forever. It was the wise men of the Chaldeans who answered the king, hearing by his request, or hearing his request, which they weren't too surprised by, and responded by asking him to tell them the dream again. Uh, that they would be more happy to give it to, uh, give the interpretation. Because that sounds fair enough. You give us a dream and we'll, we'll tell you what it means. Except for one thing. This king realized that the dream had greater significance. This is why he was troubled. This is why he could not sleep. The dream had greater significance than any dream he'd had previously. So he decided then at this point to test them. Uh, his not knowing... Or, or saying that it was gone from him did not necessarily mean that, that he had forgotten it as much as he had refused to share the dream with them. He was not looking for these men to fabricate an interpretation based on whatever dream the king would tell them. That's not what he was looking for. And so the king presented an incentive program. If you can tell me the dream I had... And then give the interpretation. Then I want to give you rewards. I want to give you gifts. I want to give you great honor. But there was a downside to the incentive program. If you can't tell me what the dream was and its interpretation, it will cost you your lives and your possessions. So they answer him again, verse 7. They, they, they said to him, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will show the interpretation of it. Now, I tell you what, if you're a king... Now you, none of us would be a king like this, would we? 
But you're a king like this, and they say that again to you. I mean, don't you think you're going to get a little bit, a little bit more mad with them? I mean, you're going to get a little bit more testy with them? I mean, because they're really, they're really trying you here. Oh, listen, he says, well, you know, just tell us. Tell us a dream, and we'll show you the interpretation of it. And the king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time. In other words, look, I know that you are trying to buy some time here. I know it. Because you see, the thing has gone from me. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. Only one thing, without any options, there is only one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. In other words, till the situation changes, you just keep giving me all kinds of malarkey. That's a nice word. I didn't want to use anything else. So keep in mind, as I said before, that the king had been in office some two years and inherited all these man from his father after his death. It, it does appear that he didn't really trust these men. So he tested them to see if, if they're supposed gifts, because they're supposed to be gifted. To see if these gifts were real, or if they were, they were just made up stuff, you know. Maybe they just made all of this stuff up. It's easy to make stuff up when you say, well, this is what my dream was. Oh, well, king, you know what uh, this means, and... And usually that would satisfy a king because it wasn't all that important. But this had to be important and significant because he couldn't sleep. It troubled him. He had obviously seen things that brought everything back to himself. Uh, We'll see that next time. So the king was essentially complaining that they were just stalling for time until the situation changed, you see. Babylonian kings, by the way, were 100% pagan. Wouldn't you agree with me? They were 100% pagan. Folks, we need to be 100% believers in Jesus Christ. We need to be 100% believers. We can't be 85% believers and maybe 15% hanging on to some things in the world or some weird things in the new age. That's why we, we realize that much of the deception in, in the emerging church and the New Age movement and all these other things, purpose-driven, whatever. I mean, we've talked about it time and time and time again. Why? Because Jesus said to us that we need to have all of him and only him. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, that makes it pretty clear. There's no other way. Nebuchadnezzar was 100% pagan. It was their practice to use people like these witch doctors to guide their decisions, such as is written in Ezekiel 21, verse 21. As a matter of fact, this, talk, this, this passage actually... Uh, well, I didn't finish here. Let's, 
Uh, but if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. You have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. Okay, I finished the verse. All right, now, Ezekiel 21, verse 21. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. This is actually speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He made his arrows bright. You know what that means? He made his arrows bright. Um, they used to cast lots with arrows. And they would write, for example, if they were going to go out to conquer, they would write uh, on, on certain arrows, they would write the names of, of the countries uh, that they were going to, uh, that they wanted to conquer. But they, to know which one it was, they kind of mixed them up and then they would take one arrow out and, and shoot it. And then they'd go find the arrow and they would see what was on the arrow. What name? That's how they went out to, you know, that's how they try to figure, you know, how they expected the gods to tell them who to go out and conquer. So he said, he made his arrows bright. He consulted with images. In other words, he consulted with his idols. And what do we know about idols? They're made out of stone, but they cannot, you know, they're, they're, they're dead. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, they cannot speak. But he consulted with them anyway. As some people still do today. I mean, if you could look at some of the comparative religious things that you see on TV today, and you see people, oh, you know, we, we, you know, they go and they bow down to Buddha, and then, you know, and they bow down to all kinds of other things. But, but listen, there's nothing in them. And then he says he looked in the liver. Oh, wow. He looked in the liver. Liver alone. Uh, they would actually take uh, uh, <laughs> um, livestock and, you know, they would uh, examine the livers of, you know, animals. Uh, and these particular uh, people that did that would tell the king, well, this is what this means, you know, by looking at the liver. Liver alone. Okay. Hey, getting back to Daniel. Why did I bring this up? Well, well, you see, getting back to Daniel, the, the wise men in defending themselves assert that the king was making an unreasonable request. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. Listen to this. In Daniel 2, verses 10 through 13, it says, The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Can you, I, I just have to tell you right now, they're indicting themselves. There's not a man in the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requires, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. <laughs> For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. They had just confessed to be in fraud. He was angry and furious. But then notice this, and the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. Now, in some more modern translations that says they went out and, sl and they began to slay them. And it says, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Why? 
because they were trained by these wise men, the Chaldeans. They were trained. They, were be- they had become that. So whether they had ever done anything yet in the kingdom of Babylon, they were now guilty by association. So they attested to the understanding that the future belonged to gods, not men, which by the way was an admission that they had deceived the king in their past interpretations. Is it any wonder that the king was furious with these men? So much so that he issued that decree to execute all the wise men, which included Belteshazzar, Shadraku. Meshaku and Abednego, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But praise the Lord for Daniel being Daniel. Because in verse 14 it says, And Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom. I would underline that. In your Bibles, I'd underline it. I'd just say, you know what? When we need to consult against, uh, against something that we, we know is not right or something that's, that, that's just terribly unjust, should we not come with counsel and wisdom? Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So he was not only the king's guard, he was now the executioner as well. He answered and he said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Literally it means, why, why is this decree so harsh? See, in a way it's hasty because, you know, there doesn't seem to have been given any opportunity to discover other than the fact that the wise men indicted themselves and admitted to their to their deception but he asks why is the decree so hasty or harsh from the king then Ariok made the thing known to Daniel why did Ariok talk to him because remember that Daniel because of his stand for God was respected by these people. So even though that they were, they were targets of this execution, Ariok spoke to, the, uh, to Daniel, and Daniel went in, and, and, and he desired of the king that he would give him time, and that he would show the king the interpretation. He wanted time. This isn't just time before the king. This is, I want time from the king to pray and to wait upon God. Daniel was careful, as I said, in how he responded to the king's captain and executioner. He answered with that great counsel and, and wisdom, something that is lacking in our society and culture, I, I believe today, uh, greatly, especially when, when facing tense and troubling situations. We know that Daniel was an innocent party here, yet with a calm and discreet spirit and attitude, he dealt with the crisis. In this case, the crisis didn't make the man. The crisis revealed the man. 
The crisis didn't make him. The crisis revealed what was already there. I would, I would that that would be for every believer in Jesus Christ. That any crisis would reveal who we are in Christ. Would reveal that we know that there is no other upon which we stand. There is no other wisdom upon which we stand but the Word of God. There is no other person upon which we stand except in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Crises should reveal the men and women that we are in Christ. You know, in Proverbs 29, verse 11, it says that a fool utters all his mind. (laughs) A fool just spills it all, you know. But a wise man keeps it, a wise man keepeth it in until afterwards. He keeps it in. A wise man doesn't say everything. A wise man is slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. He listens and he trusts the Lord. He waits on the Lord. Later on in that same proverb, Proverbs 29 verse 20, it says, Seest thou a man that, has, that is hasty in his words? And remember that that word hasty can also mean harsh. So, you know, harsh and hasty, we just quick to say whatever is on his mind. Well, there is more hope of a fool than of him. A fool has more hope than somebody who just blabbers away without thinking what he says. Daniel boldly approached the king with, with a request that the executions be stayed for a while so that he could interpret the king's dream. This took boldness, you see, because the king had already accused the wise men of wanting more time. And that's bold, isn't it? They had asked for more time, and all they got was an angrier Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel asked for time. Which tells us that Daniel was already held again in high esteem by the king. Remember that the king actually questioned the four young men at the end of their three years of training. Found them to be wiser than all the rest in all the land. That was the Lord. And Daniel attributed that to God, not to himself, not to his own wisdom. So Daniel was held in high esteem by the king because he was permitted access to the king's presence and was able to petition the king directly. Nebuchadnezzar saw the boldness in Daniel. It is possible, though it is not recorded, it is possible that Daniel may have interpreted dreams previous to this, though not necessarily for the king. But if he had, he probably did it just like Joseph did. Very clear and direct. Because if the dream came from God, God would also give the meaning and the understanding. So the rest of the passages that we're going to look at tonight, let's read from 17 through 23, verses 17 through 23. Then Daniel went to his house. What does that tell you? Then Daniel went to his house. Tells us that he went before the king and the king gave him time. 
And Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And I want you to notice here is their Hebrew names, not their Babylonian names. That's significant. It tells us something of the way God is getting ready to work. They're, they're not going before God as, as servants of, of Nebuchadnezzar or slaves of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to God as men of God. Do you all see that? They're not, bound to, they're not bound to the culture and the traditions and the society of, of Babylon in this particular case. They've stepped out of that to step into the throne room of God. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. In other words, the dream and the interpretation. That Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Again, that reminds us that uh, some of them were already being executed. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. They prayed, they received an answer, and then they worshiped the Lord. They blessed the God, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name, Baruch Hashem. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. I thank Thee and praise Thee, O Thou God of my Father who has given me wisdom and might and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. And so Daniel returned home and called his friends together for a prayer meeting. They were going to be praying for their lives But obviously the executions, as I said, had already begun. Their prayer was that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And as they humbly came before God asking for his mercy in this situation, God answered their prayers. And in turn they praised the name of God. It's an interesting phrase there, they praised the name of God. W.H. Griffith Thomas said this about that phrase. And I quote, he said, The name stands in Holy Scripture for the nature or revealed character of God and, and not a mere label or title. It is found very frequently in the Old Testament as synonymous with God Himself in relation to man. In the New Testament, the same usage is perfectly clear. They praise the name of God. God has a name. Not just a name that we gave him, like the name that many give their gods. God has a name that he gave of himself. Yahweh.
Adonai, Lord. Elohim, one God in three persons. El Shaddai, Almighty God. And none could be as mighty as He. The God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, always present. There's no God like our God. And they praised His name. They praised His goodness. They praised His character. They praised the nature of a God who said, I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Notice also how Daniel portrays God in the right and proper perspective. He is God and He is in control. God, You're the one that changes the seasons. You take down kings, you put kings up in place. You're in control. And we as men are unable to understand the things of God, but He does give us wisdom and knowledge as He reveals to us the deep things of God as He shines His light upon us. There's no darkness with our God. If we truly understood the character of our God, there's no darkness in Him. He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't hide things from us. He doesn't keep us in the dark because He says, I've given you light. All He wants to do is reveal the truth to us. The world is so different. Every other religion is so different. There's some, there's some aspect of, of these other, other beliefs and, and belief systems that keeps you in the dark. I think of some of those elite religions, you know. Where, you know, you, you, there, there are certain people that are way up high and there are secrets that they know and nobody else can know except for them. That's not our God. For that matter, we're the same with Moses and David and, and uh, Adam and, uh, and Paul and, and Peter and, and Noah and, and you just name any of those characters. One, what do we have in common with them? We're all sinners. God keeps nothing from us. All He wants to do is give us light. Which means all He wants to do is give us wisdom. James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That gives to all men liberally and upbraids not. Which means that any, any, uh, he's without reproach. He's, he's not holding anything against us. If we ask for wisdom. And it shall be given him. You ever had those nights where you say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Well, that's a good time to ask God because you don't know. I need wisdom. God says, I want to give it to you, but you haven't asked. Later on in the book of James, what does it say? You have not because you ask not. You ask not 
And sometimes you ask with the wrong motives. So when Daniel prays this way, he, you know, in respect to the Lord changing the times and the seasons, God is the one who decides when events in history will take place. God is the one. The fall of Jerusalem was no mistake. God even declares how long things will last. Jeremiah in Jerusalem will soon declare that the captivity will last for 70 years. And so Daniel was in no rush to go to the king because he knew the Lord was in control. And that caused him to praise the Lord before he went out to save lives. What an example for us to follow. Before we go out to save souls by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, take the time to praise the Lord and to thank Him for what He's going to do. I think sometimes we just have things all backwards in our head. We want to see results before we praise you, Lord. How about praising Him because God's going to do the work through you? How about thanking Him because God is going to bring the harvest through you? How about exalting Him because God is going to be the one who takes you and leads you and opens doors for you? To share the beauty of the love of His Son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 92 verses 1 through 4 says, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name almost high, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery and upon the harp with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, has made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. Notice he says, I will triumph in the works of thy hands. I thank you and I praise you and I will triumph. Is that not faith? Is, it, is that not trust? Confidence in the Lord? Not confidence in the flesh, confidence in the Lord. Paul in Philippians 4 verses 6 to 8 says, or 7, 6 and 7 says, Be careful for nothing, which means be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We're coming out here very shortly, uh, in about a week's time, to Thanksgiving. What does Thanksgiving make you think about? Don't say it. Thanksgiving makes me think about an 8 o'clock service, man, because we can get together and worship the Lord, praise Him, thank the Lord for Him, and, and ask God to just take away calories for the rest of the day. Right? Or do we not think about how wonderful He is? Doesn't thanks, the day of Thanksgiving, isn't that a day that allows us the, uh, the great understanding that it isn't just one day out of 365. It's every day that we give thanks. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. David Guzik said this, he said, our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes us to start praising God. Listen, listen to this. I've got to read it slowly here. Our level of faith is often indicated by how long it takes us to start praising God 
if we won't praise Him until the answer is in hand, then we don't have much faith. That's a striking statement. If we won't praise Him until the answer is in hand, then we don't have much faith. Greater faith is able to praise God when the promise is given and received. Greater faith is able to praise God when the promise is given and received. So Nebuchadnezzar took his problems to bed with him and it caused him to be so restless and anxious that he couldn't sleep. Daniel, on the other hand, took his problems to the Lord and simply was at rest. He took the problem to the Lord. Lord, we seek your mercies in the midst of this trial, this crisis. But you're a great God. You're a God that is in control. And we praise you. And we thank you. Doesn't sound like any slave I ever known. Except for the slaves that know Jesus. That are willing to say, Lord, we're thankful for the struggles that you've allowed us to go through so that we can just draw nearer to you. Nearer to your heart. To be strengthened by you. To be encouraged by your presence. To know that at the end of a storm, the sun does truly come out. To know that in the midst of a great flood, the waters themselves will recede. To know that at the end of some great conflagration, some great fire, out of the ashes will rise. Because nothing in this world, of this world, for this world or through this world will ever keep us from the victory that we already have in Jesus Christ. Nothing can keep us from it. Daniel said, Lord, we praise you. We have to remember this. His praise came knowing that any moment the executioner's blade could cut right through his very heart. But he trusted God anyway. Can we rest with that knowledge? The knowledge that we have a God that cares, a God that is present, a God that will never leave us nor forsake us, a God who said, I'm coming for you. I will come and get you. But be ready and be working until that day. The prophecies that we will read in the book of Daniel are substantial enough to get our hearts stirring 
in line with the revelation that we just finished studying, the book of Revelation, what we've studied in 1 Thessalonians and are studying today in 2 Thessalonians on Sunday morning about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we see more and more as we get into all of these prophetic issues is that Jesus never lied to us. He never deceived us. And He never deceives us still. And He never will. He's the only true voice. He's the only true Messiah. He's the only true Savior. There's none like Him. And we have access to Him tonight. Father, we thank You for the privilege of reading and studying Your Word together tonight. Once again, Lord, we, we realize the, the critical nature of, of this book of Daniel, the, the power, Lord God, that uh, arises to our minds and to our thoughts and to our hearts, Lord, because we realize that we, we face, Lord, each and every day an enemy who who seeks to weaken us, water us down, water down our understanding of the God that we proclaim. Fact is, Lord, we can't water you down because you never change. You are the same always. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you and bless you for keeping us on that straight and narrow path. Keep us, Lord, learning. Keep us growing in your wisdom and grace. Fill us right now to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. For indeed, as we leave here today, we do so, Lord, knowing that you could come tonight for us. But if you don't come tonight, the sun will rise again. A new day will be upon us. And we can draw near to your heart once again until that day that we can see you with our eyes and experience, Lord, your loving kindness. Bless, Lord, your people here tonight. Envelop us, overwhelm us, Lord, with your love with your peace, with your joy, with your patience and long-suffering, with your goodness and your mercies. With your faithfulness, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.